Please be seated. Actually, no, forgive me. Uh, I'm going to read the text that we'll be looking at from Romans, so please open your Bibles to Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. It's also on the front page of the handout. This is the text we'll be focusing on. So we've been looking at verses 12, or chapters 12 and 13, and so we're in this section on the law, and so here are those key verses. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. You may be seated. So we'll be focusing on the commandment to not murder today. Last time we focused on the commandment to not commit adultery. We spent two weeks before that on the fifth commandment, which was the focus of the beginning of Romans 13 and also of the uh, chapter 12. There was much there that pointed to that. So we're on the doctrine of the sixth, sorry, I have up there the fifth commandment. It should be the sixth commandment. So it's the sixth commandment, the idea of not murdering. And that commandment teaches us about love and it teaches us about power to the glory of God. Okay, so the seventh commandment is about pleasure to the glory of God. The sixth commandment is about power to the glory of God. And we, the eighth commandment is about money to the glory of God. Right, so pleasure, power, money, those are major temptations, things that we are predisposed to making to false gods, to think that our happiness depends upon them. And so as we move into this text and consider the uh, the sixth commandment, again, uh, what we should consider is the reality that the law of God is sufficient. And so there is a regulative principle of life. When we look at the verses that we have read there, the beginning verse, verse 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. So all of the positive obligations of love are communicated in the positive duties in the law. Now, verse 10 says, Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. The idea that there are no negative duties except what love communicates, except what the law of God communicates. So, if you do what the law of God says, you've done all of your positive duties, and you've avoided all negative failures. If you do what the law of God says, you've done all of your positive duties, and you've avoided all negative failures. Now, we know that the law is not something that we can perfectly keep in this life, that we are born in corruption, and that we are fighting, waging war against corruption for the whole of our lives. Now, one of the things that happens often when I talk to people about the law and the sufficiency of the law is there's sort of a concern that the law applies to too many things, or, that, or are we saying that this thing is sin or that thing is sin? And what I want to remind you is you are constantly transgressing the law of God. You are constantly transgressing the law of God. You have not lived through one heartbeat, one breath, one second, one whatever the smallest fraction of time is without sin. Now, we have faith, so we are able to do good works. But our righteousnesses are still 
filthy rags. And we, though we have faith, still have disbelief. Right? We, like the disciple, must pray that we have faith, but we need God to help our unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And so, this duty to believe everything that God has revealed to us and to have no false beliefs is something that we are in constant failure of. And all of our particular transgressions flow out of our false beliefs. So, we should not be offended at the idea that we are in sin by neglect or by transgression in some way because we have internal disorder that makes it so that we are in a state of constant transgression of the law of God. Now, this does not mean that you're always in visible sin. A blamelessness is living a life where you are not in unrepentant sin that is observable. Okay, So this idea that if there's a, uh, a thing that is a, an offense, then when someone brings it to you and you repent of it and you seek to restore properly, that is a blameless response. Now, it is possible to commit sins that are criminal, and those disqualify a person as being blameless in terms of for office for a period of time. But we need to remember that the Apostle Paul was a murderer, and that did, not, that did not disqualify him from office forever. And so, if we consider the commandment, the sixth commandment, and we consider the idea of the inward perfection of the law, the spiritual nature of the law, as we look at all the applications here, we might be tempted to say, this is too much. This is Puritan exuberance. This is an effort to make it so that our duties are too great. This is a persnicketiness that makes it so that we can't possibly keep the law. God is more persnickety than the most persnickety person you've ever met. He knows all the details, and he cares about all the details. He's also more merciful than the most merciful person you've ever met. And so we do not even know the depths of the sins that we have committed that have been forgiven. So as we study the law, we have a deeper knowledge of our guilt. That increases our awareness of the grace we have received in the gospel and should help us to be more grateful and seek to apply in more detail and with greater consistency the law of God as it is delivered to us. So we have conversations with people about the law and the tendency, even with ourselves, when we're preaching to ourselves, is to not remember the sufficiency of the law of God. And so, the full explanation of the good that you can do to a person is given in the law of God. And the law is a full explanation of the harm that you can do to a person. Therefore, the law teaches one about all good and all evil acts that can be committed. The law is sufficient to give a view of life that is sufficient for all choices. Okay, so 2 Timothy 3.16 is a reminder of that doctrine as well. But do you see how verses 8 and 10 really teach us about the sufficiency? You know, all of your duties are contained in loving your neighbor and in not hating your neighbor. And that's what the law teaches. That's the fulfillment of the law. Okay? 
So the sufficiency of the law. So 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Right. So the scriptures, all of the scripture texts that we have are breathed out by God. They're God's word. They're profitable for doctrine, for what we should believe. They're profitable for reproof, knowing what we should put off. For correction, knowing what we should put on. And for instruction or training in righteousness, helping us to actually carry out the practice. That the man of God may be complete. Not incomplete. Thoroughly equipped. Not insufficiently equipped or partially equipped. For every good work, not some good works. Complete. Thoroughly equipped. Every good work. That triple stack of universals right there is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Any one of them by itself, sufficient to make the man of God complete. Okay, that'd be fine. Thoroughly equipped, that would be fine. For every good work, that would be fine. The three of them stacked together, this is the Pauling overkill that I so love. And so, what we have here is a reminder of the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. So as we move to our duties in the Sixth Commandment, let's consider the general principles in the Sixth Commandment. The larger catechism says, which is the Sixth Commandment in question 134, page 2. The Sixth Commandment is, you shall not kill. And that's from Exodus 20, verse 13. So, general principles I want to lay out here. So, the Sixth Commandment is about power, it's about violence, it's about coercion, it's about life and health and the image of God. Those are significant themes that it relates to. The abuse of power is something that this addresses We ought not to seek to change our behavior with merely outward changes. That's one of the the deep elements here. What would a person murder another person for? Well, the first murder that ever occurred, right, we have Cain killing Abel, and he kills him because he's covetous of the favor of God that that Abel receives. He's covetous of the fact that, that his sacrifice was not accepted, but Abel's sacrifice was. So the dishonor of that, the shame of that, the, the envy of that, there's this desire to change that. And so rather than reasoning within himself and applying the word of God to correct his own unbelief, what he does is instead he seeks to change the situation by removing the one that he envies. If he kills him, then his condition will not be so envious, will it? Well, in fact, it is. It's a far better condition than Cain entered. He's able to go immediately into paradise. Still a more enviable position. But this is, this is the lie that leads to the use of violence. It's to change the circumstance, and it's to seek to tear down the object of hate. So abuses of power come from a failure to focus upon truth, to focus on rationality. Now, that does not mean that every use of violence is sinful. It's your duty to use violence with people who are unwilling to apply the word of God in such a way that they end up seeking to use coercive power or violence against you or other innocent parties. You have a duty to use violence to stop that. The magistrate has a duty to use violence to punish. Just wars are the use of violence to stop violence. Those are commanded in the law of God. They are good works, and they are rational and reasonable, and it is foolish and unreasonable to not use violence in those circumstances. But we have to use violence to resist evil because of the violence coming from sin. 
So we ought not to seek to change our behavior with merely outward changes. We're rational beings and should seek to change our behavior by changing our beliefs to become more and more in conformity with truth. We ought to seek to persuade others rather than control them except as penalties for crimes and enforcement of contracts. Now, I left something out there. There's also the rod, of course, in the household, which is a form of violence. And we're told that if we love our children, we're going to apply the rod. Right? And so that's a type of violence. It's a very controlled violence. It's a meek or gentle violence. The parent could obviously do far more to harm a child than simply cause a little bit of outward pain. But the controlled use of strength to cause outward pain without causing prolonged damage is a gentle or meek use of power for a parent over a fallen child. And so this fits into the fifth commandment. We're told, or sorry, the sixth commandment. We're told that we are hating our child when we do not use the rod. And so there are times where it's obvious that it's our duty of love to use a coercive power. So that is a mild form. Now, point three, the body must be preserved and the soul is more important than the body. You can seek death. You can murder souls with heresy. You can seek harm with words in other ways, with slander or false testimony. But this points to the reality of the importance of the soul as well. The preservation of the body points to the importance of the soul. We must seek to preserve both the body and the soul of ourselves and of our neighbor in a manner that is fitting based upon our stations and their station. Now, Pastor Gangadine, in his book, Philosophical Foundation, when he's discussing initially uh, Moral Law 6, when he's discussing the Sixth Commandment, he talks about the idea of a hierarchy of being um, in which higher beings possess the attributes of lower beings. And this becomes the basis of dominion, and this becomes the reason for the need to protect human life, and the idea of the image of God, and so rationality being the basis of that. So I want to, I want to, I know that a number of people here have been studying that for years, and so what I'd like to do is to push on that and to say that there's an error there. The error there is the idea that all higher beings possess the attributes of lower beings. Think about this for a second. Does God possess all the same attributes as you? He does not. And so this cannot be true in a universal sense. And so one might argue, well, this is only talking about created things. Okay, fine. Do angels possess all of the attributes of animals? Are angels higher than animals? One of the attributes they do not possess is a physical body. They are spiritual and not physical. They are higher than animals. Therefore, we have those two examples in terms of the chain of being that God does not possess all the attributes of all of the creatures and angels do not possess all of the attributes of the creatures that are lesser than angels. So that means that that is a general principle is not true. And the funny thing is, this is an important debate that has occurred in the history of the church, and this comes out of Aristotle and was passed into the church through Thomas Aquinas. Um, angels are higher than men now, and the righteous angels are higher than everything other than man for all time. The angels being higher than us right now is not because of the fact that they are permanently higher beings. It's a station given by law. We 
being higher than angels eventually is not because of our natures being higher than theirs. It's because of the fact that we are adopted sons. It's in law. So it is law and not the nature of the things that establishes their authority over other things. And so man is the crown of creation, but it's not because we possess all the attributes of everything that's lower than us, and it's not angels are not the penultimate or the next highest because they possess all the attributes of everything below them. There is a different hierarchy of being. The hierarchy of being is not that the creatures possess all of the attributes of the lower things. It's that everything is made to show an attribute of God. And there's a chain of God's attributes from more basic to less basic. And so when God creates, he creates things for the purpose of, crea- of displaying his own attributes. And in displaying his own attributes, the reason man is the crown of creation is because we were made to display the mercy of God because only man can have both spiritual death and physical death. We are designed for that purpose and because of that we can have a mediator that comes in our place to die physically but not die spiritually so that his death as a substitute is able to be like unto us, but he's, he has our nature, and he's also sinless and the God-man. And so he doesn't have to spiritually die, but he can pay for our sins with death. Now, these two different competing views of the, sort of the hierarchy of being, one being sort of the Aristotelian and Thomist view where the lower things, uh, the higher things have all the attributes of the lower things, that has an order inside of the creation itself as opposed to the focus on the order of history where the history makes it so that each thing is for the purpose in providence of displaying the particular attribute of God. So angels exist to show justice, mere justice. That is the penultimate attribute that's displayed. And so when we look at that, we're saying that the teleology of history and the order of God's story uses creation to display those things, but they do not, each creature does not possess all of the attributes of something lower than it on the chain. Now, this led into one of the things that is the most, um, use, most used ways of mocking theologians. So the debate, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, right? It's actually an important debate. Right? And this, the reason is this. Are angels material beings or are they spiritual beings? This was used as a humorous and memorable question in the scholastic medieval debate process. Right? It's humorous on purpose. And so the idea is this. If angels are material, a finite number of them could dance on the head of a pin. Maybe zero. Maybe they're big enough that they can't dance on the head of a pin. But there's got to be a limit if they take up space if they're physical in their bodies. However, if they're spiritual, then they would not take up any space, and you could have an infinite number, in theory, dancing on the head of a pin. And that was the point. And so that comes down to, if you end up saying that angels are the second highest, and they possess all the attributes of everything lower than them, then you are forced to the position that angels have material bodies, and therefore only 893 million can dance on the head of a pin. And that would be a travesty to come to that conclusion. 
Right? The number is not the point. Angels are designed as spiritual creatures. They are ministering spirits. They do not have bodies. They manifest physically on occasion, but they are not physical beings. So, the authority of man over the creation is not innate in our design, but is rather a grant of authority. Now, here's, here's something I would do want to make very, very clear. If you're not a rational creature, then you cannot receive authority. If you're not a rational creature, then you cannot receive authority. God is both the designer of the creation and the giver of the law, and there is a fittingness of them. The law is not absurd in its connection to the nature of things. And the nature of things is designed to display the glory of God. And so both together are designed with a telos, with an end in mind, the giving of design and the giving of law. But we need to realize that the law has changes in it that occur over time, including, for example, the grant of authority to use coercive power to take vengeance, which is not inherent in the Sixth Commandment, but instead the giving of the power to take vengeance is granted in the Noahic Covenant. The right to defend yourself is inherent in the Sixth Commandment, but the power to take vengeance is not. So, a grant of authority is given, and it's the basis for man's rule. The dominion mandate captures that. Genesis 1 and 2 capture the grant of authority over the, creature, over the other, other creatures. We can't derive an ought from it is. One thing we could also look at is you might think, oh, man, by his nature, is authorized to eat of every tree. That's not true. There was a specific tree that we were not to eat of. And that was a ceremonial thing. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a sacrament in the covenant of works. It's given as a sign of that covenant. And it was set apart and forbidden to be eaten of distinctly by law. Man was not authorized to eat animals until the Noahic covenant. So what we have is changes in terms of the power and the grant of authority that's given. It's a grant of authority by law. God has title over all of these things. He grants the authority. The design of our nature does not inherently give us authority over all these things. They're God's property. He could say, don't touch any of it. The authority of the magistrate to kill does not come from his being different in kind in his nature than ordinary men. That idea, this Aristotelian theory of the order of things, leads to nobility theory and royalty theory. Noble blood, royal blood. In addition to that, the distinctions between men and women and the authority in marriage are then appealed to for a basis of authority of the man, as opposed to a grant of law. And that can lead, and has led, in many cases, to the idea that in general in society, men should have authority over women in general, which is not biblical. And the authority of parents over children, it is not the apparent authority of all adults over children, it's the authority of particular parents over particular children, is given in law. So these things are established in law, and that is the basis for authority. 
So what's required in the Sixth Commandment? The Sixth Commandment requires all, this is the Shorter Catechism 68, all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. What's forbidden? It, the Sixth Commandment forbids the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tends to the taking away of our own life or our neighbor's life unjustly. So, if we think about those principles, we should be able to derive all of the things that get listed out in the larger catechism explanation. So those are the, the simpler versions. That's the, the principial form. And so now we're going to be diving into particulars. And my goal is to help you to consider, and the purpose of the larger catechism is to help you to consider implications of that. And your job is to test, is this a necessary inference? Is this scripturally demonstrable? Are these applications actually that? And not just to have a sort of skeptical attitude of, well, I could find a way, but rather, what is the meaning of the text? What is your duty? Your job is to search out and find the applications of the law of God and then seek to apply them in your own life. And so you sit in judgment and you test the teaching and your job is to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. So now, let's go through and look at our catechetical standard here and the application of it. So question 135. What are the duties required in the Sixth Commandment? The duties required in the Sixth Commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others. And then now we have a list of things. So that this is the, the general responsibility. Notice it's added the idea of, of careful studies. So the other one has forbidding the taking it requires lawful endeavors to preserve our own life. And now when we're talking to more mature audience, there's sort of this, you need to be carefully studying to understand the law, to understand the means, to understand the skills, to make it so that you can do this. So the, six, the duties required in the Sixth Commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of the life of any by just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, physic, sleep, labor, and recreations, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, and requiring good for and requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. So, go to page four, point twelve. The duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and of others. So, Ephesians five twenty eight and twenty nine has for us the underlined portion there. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. The point is here that God's design is such, and the law of God is written on the heart as such, to make it so that it is absurd to think that one should not pursue one's own interest. And so egoism, 
not altruism, is the biblical ethic. Okay, so egotism is seeking your own interest without regard to the interests of others. Egoism is the idea that you should pursue your self-interest, and it can include the idea that your interests involve seeking the interests of others. And so you can look at the Bible. The Bible repeatedly appeals to benefits. It repeatedly appeals to rewards. It repeatedly appeals to reasons to avoid something, harms, penalties, curses. And so that's an appeal to self-interest. And what Paul is saying here is everybody loves themselves, but the issue is they always, you always seek your own good, but you don't always know what your own good is. That's the problem, right? The, the sin comes from ignorance and error, unbelief. Sin comes from ignorance and error. Whenever you sin, you are believing a lie. You are choosing what is false. And so, we need to preach against falsehood. So this, is, this text is showing us that we need to preserve our own lives, and it's showing that everybody always pursues what they think is their own interest. Now, 1 Kings 18 has here an example of Obadiah the prophet. When there were a hundred prophets, uh, Jezebel was massacring and trying to remove them from the land, and Obadiah sought to hide them. And here are the care, here's the care he took to preserve their, own, their lives. He hid them from massacre. Again, this is resistance against the civil magistrate, by the way. He hid them from massacre. He split them up to reduce the risk in case one location was found. The other one would still not be found, so some of them would survive. And, you know, why not 12 locations? Well, the more locations you've got, the more likelihood that someone's going to be caught, right? So there's this, like, balancing between how do you minimize the probability of being caught, but also minimize the disastrousness of if you are. So this was his attempt to judge the best way to mitigate the risks. So he has two locations. So then, he provides means to sustain their lives. He fed them with bread and water. So this is his effort to preserve these prophets against the magistrates seeking to murder them. So we are to carefully study and to apply all lawful endeavors to preserve our own lives and the lives of others. And in one case, what we are given is this idea that we need to consider human nature and pursue the good of man as designed by God. Right? So the good is God. We are rational creatures. We are designed to know God. We are told that. And so we also need to realize that we therefore need to pursue man's good in accordance with that design. And so self-interest is a part of that design. But we also need to realize that we need to study how to deal with particular problems and intelligently think about how to deal with risk mitigation and providing means and when we should disobey. If you have not carefully studied the limits of human authority, when you receive an unlawful order, you will not have the courage to say no. If you do not have well-defined limits of what you are willing to do in the face of unlawful orders, you will go along with it. This is why tyranny works. This is why most authority structures that have ever been made by men 
are tyrannical because most people do not stop and think about the legitimate extent of human authority. The places that have been able to establish ordered liberty are Protestant lands. And what happened is you had Protestants resisting tyranny in multiple situations and establishing law order. They were able to define both what ought not to be done and what the proper limits of authority were and what the grants of authority were that should be recognized. And as a result, were able to maintain and build covenant institutions that lasted with ordered liberty better than has been done in history before it. And so the idea of the careful study to understand both how to engage with a situation to be skilled, but also to know when you should resist is important. Point 13. By resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any. Okay, so thoughts and purposes, I have there, um, I have the verses that are, that are down, but we're going to have to speed up to get through here. So we have to resist thoughts and purposes that are false and that are against uh, human life, that are, that are for the unjust taking away of life of ourselves or anybody else. And so that means we have to argue with other people. The, the, the example in Acts 23 involves talking to a civil magistrate to be able to bring protection when, when, when Paul was being threatened to be murdered. Um, and there's in Jeremiah 26, there are lesser magistrates that interpose themselves against Jehoiakim, king of Judah, when he was going to kill the prophet Jeremiah. And so this stepping in and saying no to stop the man from dying who doesn't deserve it, to avoid innocent blood coming on their hands, that was the idea. So this, this willingness to, to resist other people's thoughts and intentions, but you also have to resist your own. And you know the weapon against both of those is the same? You use arguments against other people when they have violent desires, and you use arguments against yourself when you have violent desires. When you have unjust anger, you must argue with yourself. Preach to yourself. And so, we are constantly doing that. We're examining things, analyzing things, seeing, is this legitimate? Is this right? Is this the appropriate response? Now, covetousness for honor, money, pleasure, power can lead to a willingness to kill unjustly. And so, the only way to not have an improper desire is to study God, to have the knowledge of God, and to be able to argue to yourself why the knowledge of God is the good and not honor, money, pleasure, or power. Right? When, we, when it's those things, we look at it and we go, I want that, and he's getting it. And so there's this thought that this is the good, he gets it, I don't get it. Remember, with the knowledge of God, when we share it, there's more of it. And so what we have to do is to be ready to argue against our disordered desires and to be ready to do that to other people. You study to be able to give an answer for yourself. And that makes you capable of giving an answer for others. Right? The, the idea that studying apologetics is just about talking to other people, or just about bringing other people to the faith, is absurd. Apologetics is about governing yourself. And the overflow of that is that you can speak words to other people, words of life, and you can restrain evil with those words. 
Now, we're called to careful study and lawful effort to preserve life by subduing our passions. And I'll tell you what, if you do not have a habit of thought of answering objections for yourself when you have to coolly consider something or when you're engaging with somebody else about it, you will not be fit, you will not be ready to argue against the rising of your own passions. So there are two prominent passions that tend towards murder. Okay? The emotional, powerful anger that can come out when something you highly value is in danger. And also despair. Anger leads to murder, and despair leads to self-murder. And so you must fight against both of these passions and subdue them. And in subduing them, remove that danger. And when you learn to subdue your own anger and your own despair, you will be far more effective at helping others to subdue their anger and their despair. You will have the right words for the right time because you will have been preaching them to yourself. The wise study how to answer. And as a result, they have the right words, apples of gold, at the right time in the setting of silver. That is the result of meditating on the word of God and having careful study to be able to subdue your own passions. Now, this does not mean that emotions or passions are evil in and of themselves. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. And so that has to do with don't prolong the anger. Um, and we also don't want to allow the anger to make it so we're easy to be tempted by the devil. So, anger is not sinful by definition. Anger is the appropriate response to evil and injustice. Anger is a gift from God for giving strength to resist evil. Imagine, imagine actually having to use violence to defend against evil. If you don't have anger, if you don't have an adrenaline surge, if you are not given a short-term burst of strength in that situation, your effectiveness would dramatically decline. Now, uncontrolled anger, even in combat, is dangerous. It's one of the ways the soldiers get killed. It's one of the ways that they ineffectively shoot or before guns would hack. And so this idea of, of an undisciplined sort of anger, even in battle, against evil people is foolish. One of the reasons the Romans were so effective and that their legions were a killing machine is because they trained their soldiers to resist the temptation to swing a sword. They trained their soldiers to thrust which is not the natural human tendency when you have a blade in your hand and someone is coming at you. The natural tendency is to swing. And so suppressing that and teaching ordered thrusting made it so that barbarian lines would crash against the shields of Romans and they would have axes or hammers or swords lifted above head and then they would be stabbed. And so the Romans were a dauntless killing machine that would often mow down barbarian armies. And that was because of the ability to both use the anger and strength that's necessary in battle, but to also restrain it to be able to be thoughtful. And training, habit, enables you to do that. 
when you are angry with someone, if you are not trained in trying to be reasonable and to argue well, you are going to not use a reasoned argumentation in a careful, stabbing motion. You are going to hack. And when you do that, you endanger yourself. Now, anger is a gift from God for giving strength to resist evil. Sinful anger is unjust by being without cause and or due process. Misdirected at the wrong rational agent or disproportionate in time and or intensity while being directed toward the right rational agent with cause. Right? So those are things to watch out for. Okay, is there a cause to be angry? Have I given due process before being angry? In other words, like, have I asked the person what their perspective is on the situation? Or have I tried to say, hey, I think you just did this thing, and that's, that's a violation of this commandment. And the person goes, no, 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 you misunderstood. This is what happened, ABC. Right? This, that explanation, you are called to give process to people. So when we are angry at the wrong rational agent or at an irrational thing, we are misusing anger. If we're angry with God, it's always the wrong agent. When you're angry with God, you've always misdirected. Right? Return to go. Do not collect $200. Start over. Think it through. Right? That is the problem. And so when you have that, when you're angry at an irrational agent, you know what that means? Not an agent, but an irrational object. That means you're angry with God. Because when you stub your toe, it's not the block's fault. It's God's providence that you're unhappy with. And so that idea of being mad at an irrational or non-thinking object is a displeasure toward God. So we should always make sure that we're not angry with with irrational objects or with God. All right, so then the idea of a prolonged time, we have, in general, and especially inside of the household, you should seek to resolve matters of dispute and anger within the day, and the Lord's Supper is a time of callback, and so we have household worship, there's public worship, there's the Lord's Supper. These are all reminders of the need for restoration, and so they are callbacks for that purpose, and you cannot take the Lord's Supper if you're not in process of resolving an open dispute with a brother. Occasions, temptations, and practices, that's point C, which tend to the unjust taking away of any life. Occasions are events, okay? So an occasion is something that is not sinful in itself, but is something that would make it easier to sin. It's an opportunity to sin. It's a time or circumstance that makes sinning more convenient or likely. And an occasion, you can be, there can be common occasions, there can be things that are like shared in the culture, but there can also be um, occasions that are particular to you. If you have some sin, some besetting sin that you're struggling against, and you find there's a particular thing, and that particular thing is something that you tend to associate because of your own thought patterns with some sort of uh, sin that you're fighting, you want to avoid those occasions. So if you struggle with drunkenness, you want to avoid going to bars and having alcohol in open containers sitting in front of you. You know, that would be an example, an obvious example. Is it sinful to drink alcohol? No. In fact, we have some commands to drink alcohol, like with the Lord's Supper, right? And you can use alcohol in a lawful and good way as a blessing from God, but there are ways that it could be an occasion for sin that ought to be avoided. So we're, we're called to be diligent to avoid occasions for sin and to 
think about this. Here's the positive duty. Accumulate occasions for good works. Accumulate occasions for good works. How is your house laid out? Is your house laid out to encourage idleness and wasting of time? Or is your house organized in such a way as to encourage good works? And so, how do you order your space so that it's filled with occasions for good works? So, by making the tools and resources and space available to be able to do good works, you make it easier to do. So, setting up the environment to encourage good habits, that's what occasions for righteousness would be. Now, generally the response to talking about occasions is, well, it's not sin to have you know, an open drink of alcohol in front of me. Of course it's not. But if you struggle with drunkenness, it's a ridiculously stupid thing to do. And so, that would be true of any sin that you have. Go through the Ten Commandments. What are the places of weakness? What are the occasions for sin there? That's what examining yourself. The Lord's Supper is a call for you to examine how carefully am I ordering my life to be able to do good works. How am I ordering my space and time so that I come into occasions for good works? So some duties require us to deal with and be around and even create occasions for sin. We should not create occasions for sin without some good work that would require the occasion. And then we should be careful to consider who ought to be the one to face the occasion. So if you have a situation where you are going to deal with some sort of stumbling block, something that you could reasonably think, you know, this thing could cause me to sin. Okay, do you have a duty to deal with that thing? Is there somebody else who could better deal with that duty? than you in your house so that you can make that run more effectively? Is there a brother who could assist you with that thing? Is there a way that the body can bless each other to deal with that duty so that somebody who has greater strength in some area is able to deal with that thing as opposed to the person who has weakness in that area? And that's a part of the idea of bearing each other's burdens. Occasions are not temptations in the sense of being efforts of others to tempt. Right? So, an object can be a temptation in the sense that it's a thing that you tend to associate with some evil desire. But that object is not trying to tempt you. Right? So um, the, the, the alcohol is not rationally plotting to get you to drink it. But it is a temptation for you. And so the idea that Occasions are not temptations in the sense of an effort of others to tempt. If somebody else knows that you struggle with drunkenness and they put alcohol in your path in order to cause you to potentially stumble, they are tempting you as an agent. They are committing the sin of tempting you. Okay? And so an occasion is what we sometimes call a temptation. Now, the, the box of cookies in the pantry is a temptation for me to eat it. Well, it's an occasion. That's a technical thing. If my wife bought them in order to try to get me to eat them, that would be her tempting me with the cookies. I don't think she's doing that. All right. So, 
the idea of a temptation. Go down to point G on page 6. That which is presented to the mind as an inducement to evil. The term here is not to be used as an inanimate thing or events that can be occasion for sin, but rather temptation is being used as an intentional effort to tempt or events that others design to create desire for evil. So this idea. So Jesus is tested in Matthew chapter 4. He's, he goes to be tested. And Satan tempts him. So Jesus needed to have the occasion of, you know, of sin going and being tested, fasting, and preparing for office. That was for the duty of entering office. But, Jesus, but, but Satan sought to tempt him. So the idea that an occasion is not always a sin to be around. So then practices, page 7, practices that tend in a certain way. So it's the actual performance of a thing. And think about this, as you do things over and over again, that builds habits, right? And so the idea of a a particular practice or a common practice, something that's customary for you. And so the idea of avoiding particular actions and habituated behaviors that would tend towards the taking away of life. So think about this. If you are accustomed to the habit of regular exercise and healthful eating, that is going to tend towards the preserving of your own life. And so that idea of instead on the other side a tendency towards idleness and unhealthful eating is going to tend towards the destruction of your own life and so when we think about the need to act in such a way as to build good habits they can be in favor of life or they can be against life if you tend towards a habit of angry communication that's going to tend towards people responding with anger and anger escalates each other. It's going to tend towards disputes that can result in violence, stress, anxiety. So the idea of controlling self. So point 14 on page 8. By just defense, we're supposed to defend lives, our own lives, the lives of others. Against violence, just to have a patient bearing of the hand of God, a quietness of mind, a cheerfulness of spirit. So the initial things we looked at are sort of the broad categories, and we're going into more and more kind of detail as we move down. So this broad category of a just defense of our own lives or others, you, you study, you have careful study to do that. In order to defend yourself effectively, you have to train. And um, the idea that you're going to defend yourself and others against violence, you need equipment. And depending on the type of the threat of violence, you might need an organization of other people. And so one of the habits of a free people, a responsible people, is the idea of the citizen soldier. And the citizen soldier, the militia, the armed male populace meeting together to regularly train is a part of the habituated practice of a free and virtuous people. And so there is a need for that. The removal of the militia as a part of the ordered society of a free people and the replacement of it with a professionalized standing army is a part of the practice of removing the preparedness of the people and is also a part of the practice of the preservation of a centralized government 
and an intervening international policy. And these practices and the extraction of wealth from other people for them is a methodology that does not align with the habituated practices of a virtuous and free people. We need to be trained for the defense of ourselves and others against violence and to be ready to exercise those things. The patient bearing with the hand of God. So as opposed to, you know, bemoaning problems all the time, the idea that you seek to not unnecessarily complain, but instead to patiently bear with God's providences while applying the lawful means to improve your station. So patient, dealing with suffering, while applying the lawful means to improve your station. That includes prayer. That includes reminding yourself of all the blessings that God has given to you especially eternal life. And so the reminder that you have the knowledge of God that cannot be taken from you, and that it makes it so that you can interpret your experiences of suffering and of the enjoyment of things. Quietness of mind. This is not Eastern meditation. This is not the removal of thought. This is, quietness of mind is about a a stability of thought, as opposed to just kind of constantly worrying, going back and forth and, you know, have you ever caught yourself in this thing where you're just thinking about, here's a problem and I don't know how to solve it, and here's another problem and I don't know how to solve that, and here's another problem that I don't know how to solve, and here's this other problem and I don't know how to solve that. You, you can stir yourself up internally to complain and to see all the problems and to feel hopeless. If you think of a problem, you think about a plan to solve the problem or improve the problem or a reason why you have to wait and can't improve the situation, and you pray and say, Lord, I need you to deal with this. I do not have the power. And I'm going to do the good works that are in front of me and leave this to you and ask for your help. Or you say, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to make progress. Here's the plan. And I know that unless you give power to it, I cannot build this on my own. I will watch in vain without you. I will build in vain without you. And so you rely upon God in the application of means to resolve a problem, as opposed to the flitting about of the mind on objects of anxiety and frustration. The more you do with your life, and the more problems you have to solve, the more you will have to apply that virtue of quietness of mind. Because the more responsibility you have, the more things that you care about that are around you, the more of it will be messy, and there will be a great temptation to be concerned about it. And so the Lord grows us gradually to be able to handle more and more mess and more and more stress. And so he causes us to be able to grow in that. He practices our minds in that quietness of mind as we fight through those things. Cheerfulness of spirit. We're called to be happy warriors. We're called to be happy warriors. The Psalms are songs written for warriors to help them to be happy. If you do not relate to the Psalms, you should ask yourself, what are you doing with your life? Have you considered male modeling? There are better things to do than a life that has no fighting in it. If you are not engaged in the spiritual warfare, then what are you engaged in? Because you are either with Christ or you're against him. And if you're not fighting the darkness, you're fighting for the darkness. And so there's a spiritual warfare that's present in the Psalms. And the Psalms 
are the songs that encourage the cheerfulness of the hearts of those who serve under the banner of Christ. So we're called to be cheerful, which means, by the way, we need to have hope and we need to know what the mission is and be focused on it. So guess what? If you have salvation, you can't lose it. Guess what? If you have salvation, you're on the winning team. If you seek to advance, the Lord will bless. If you don't seek to advance, the Lord's going to advance elsewhere. The kingdom is moving. Christ is on the march. The darkness is being subdued. The leaven is filling the lump. We are going to win. God doesn't need you, but he chose you. And he chose you to show he doesn't need you and win through you. We know the goal to fill the earth with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. We know it will happen. And you have the honor of being used for that purpose. So be cheerful in advancing that cause. We're called to a sober use of meat, drink, physics, sleep, labor, and recreations. So meat, what you eat, a sober use of it, an intelligent use of it. Drink, a sober and intelligent use of drink, and that includes alcoholic drink. Physic, that would be health things, medicine, things that fit in those lines. I'm sure you've met people who are overly obsessed with using medicinal and health and wellness things. You've probably also met people who are under-concerned about health and wellness and medicinal things. We are called to a sober and intelligent, a purpose-oriented, a God-glorifying use of meat, drink, medical wellness, health things, sleep, labor, and recreations. There's a place for all of them as a time to dance. Less time to dance than our culture thinks. But there's a time for it. There's a time for the enjoyment of blessings, for the celebration of things, for the use of things, for that purpose of enjoyment. We're called to interpret things charitably, to look for the best interpretation, and to see if it's reasonable to interpret in that way. We're called to seek the good of our neighbor, to love them. That means you need to know the good. So again, careful study, right? So are you able to define how God is the good and to be able to break down false goods so that you can help people there? To have compassion. When you see somebody suffering, do you care to remove the pat, that, 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 that suffering do you weep with those who weep in the church? And do you rejoice with those who rejoice? Meekness and gentleness are the same thing. It's a controlled strength. The idea of using controlled strength. I talked about the example of disciplining of children. You should use controlled strength there. In general, <coughs> the recognition of the power, the authority that you have, and seeking to use it in a controlled way for the accomplishment of the goal. Kindness is doing something that's meant to be an immediate, enjoyable act and also to seek the good of the other person, the other party. So you can think about that as love in the more narrow sense of things that are meant to provide immediate helps. And we can talk about kindness in another way. You could say, for example, you know, it was a kindness to discipline a child because of the fact that you needed to help them to stop their disorderly behavior. But we typically use kindness to refer to the things that are immediately enjoyable and for the person's good. So these are things that help us to not 
seek the destruction of the other person, but are instead building them up and seeking to advance their lives. Peaceable, mild, and courteous speeches and behavior. This idea of peaceable speech, like, do you know, have you studied? I recall the study. Have you studied how to speak in such a way as to encourage peace? Ken Sandy's uh, Peacemaker has some good material in there. The Resolving Everyday Conflict is the short version of that. And knowing how to give apologies and how to receive apologies and knowing, trying to look for language and that doesn't provoke but is instead peaceable. Knowing how to be mild rather, right, if you if you get into a fight and your fight starts with you always, right, you're not being mild, you're blowing it up. But if instead you say, you know, sometimes you do this thing and the reason it bothers me is blah. Right, that's far less provoking than you always or you never, right, you tend to not do this thing. And we've talked about this. That's, that's a different way of approaching. So this idea of mild speech, courteous speeches, when you're engaging with a person who is over you in authority or you're dealing with the public honor of somebody else, being courteous, knowing how to speak in such a manner that's fitting of the forum, being able to speak in such a, speak in such a way as to deal with the honor of the other party. That's what courteous speech is about. The word courteous comes from the word court, you know, like the court of kings or a public court for matters of adjudication, right? this idea of speaking in a way that's fitting of sort of this public sphere. It, you could say it's polite speech, which is based upon the word polis. Polite speech is focused on speech that's fitting for the public and the polis, the city. Or you could say civil speech, which has to do with the civitas, the city. Okay, these are all things about the public business, the court, the civitas, the polis. These words all point to the idea of how do you speak in such a way that's fitting to honor in public? Do you know how to avoid giving offense to honor in public? If you learn to speak in that way, it helps you to be able to positively advance peace and therefore life and to preserve life and to reduce stress, to avoid causes of fighting, causes of anger. Forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, and requiting good for evil. So this idea of forbearance is you don't always do what maximal you have the right to do, but you are patient. This readiness to be reconciled when the person apologizes, takes responsibility, the willingness to forgive and to seek to restore things. Uh, if you're the one who's committed the wrong, a willingness to make it right to bear the burdens, pay the costs of repentance. Patient bearing and forgiving of injuries. And that includes sometimes choosing to overlook. Requiting good for evil. When somebody does something wrong to you, seeking to bless them, seeking to do them good, seeking to obey the law of God toward them. These are the positive duties that are laid out in the Sixth Commandment. So the very last one's on page 11, and we'll stop here since we haven't gone into the negative yet. Comforting and succoring the distressed and protecting and defending the innocent. This idea of comforting and succoring the distressed. When somebody is 
is injured, when somebody is in physical distress, when somebody is in psychological distress, do you know how to comfort them? Do you know how to give them aid? And so one of the things, you, you have the, the, the physical care of the person, right? We think about the medical industry as, as doing that. We think about doctors and, and nurses. And frankly, just so you know, the development of this care largely came out of the diaconal ministry of churches. The development of careful medicinal practice advanced in Western civilization largely through the diaconal service of churches seeking to bless those who are in distress. So most of the hospitals in this country were founded from the diaconal funds of the major denominations of Protestant churches. And then they were sold off and now they have a name like Dignity or Banner or Honor or some other conglomerate. So that idea, Puritan pastors often thought of themselves as physicians of the soul. And they were teaching people to deal with the careful care of the soul and its concerns. And so this idea that when you're studying the word of God and you learn to apply it to yourself, one of the things you're also doing as you learn to apply it to yourself is you are learning how to comfort and succor the souls of others. So you must learn the word of God. You must learn apologetics. You must be able to preach to yourself, to argue with yourself, and you will then be ready to be useful to other people and to provide aid to their souls in time of distress. Protecting and defending the innocent. This involves both physical protection and protecting and defending the innocent from words that are wrong, from, from heresy, from slander, right? these kinds of things. So the willingness to step in, the willingness to engage in public debate or to engage in physical altercation for the protection and defense of the innocent. And again, that is something that requires training. It requires a, a readiness to be able to resist. Look at Proverbs 31, verses 8 to 9, at the very bottom of page 11. Open your mouth for the speechless and the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. If you have power, if you have wealth, if you have station, if you have gifting, when you see others who have less of those things, especially covenanted brothers, there should be a concern about that. And this idea of the duty of protecting and defending the innocent is one of the reasons why the abomination of abortion in this land must be resisted, must be stopped, and civil magistrates must punish that murder. And one of the things that's bringing curse in our nation is the fact that there is a weakness in the opening of the mouth of the speechless and the cause of all who are appointed to die, and the duty of the magistrates to open their mouths, to judge righteously, and to plead the cause of the poor and needy. There are none so poor as infants, and none so needy as the unborn. They depend upon succor by others. And so we must apply this broadly, but we need to realize that that is a great damage that is occurring in our nation and continue to pray against it and to pray that with the overturning of Roe v. Wade that in our own state there will be a stopping of the slaughter of the unborn. So 
I stand open to comments, questions, and objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Courtney? Yes. Um, is it not a biblically uh, true, also that the case could be made, that um, the development, uh, maintenance, and deployment of a professional or standing army is not only not biblically proscribed, but as we see from history and from the Bible, it can be interpreted that it's biblically prescribed. Um, so the question is, uh, is there a biblical uh, requirement and uh, basis for having a standing army? Um, and yes, there is, but not a large standing army. The idea of having a, a standing army that is sort of the backbone around which quickly the citizen soldiers can uh, uh, can rally. Um, the idea of a small standing army to deal with immediate emergency defense and to provide for the security of borders. Um, the idea of standing fleets because ships require a long time to build and also are far more difficult to use to occupy a population. Um, you could put logs underneath them and try to roll them on the ground. Uh, but the um, the idea that that a standing a large standing army as opposed to a citizen soldiery uh, as the principal body of troops uh, is, is what I'm talking about. Okay. Thank you. Mr. Knight. Thank you for your um, you, you mentioned when talking about anger that it was a, an emotion or a, a passion. I wanted to know if you could maybe just quickly um, lay out how anger for, if anger is an emotion or passion, how it's different from between us and God. Sure. Yeah, so uh, God's anger is his desire for uh, justice uh, towards evil. God's anger is his wrath or hatred. It's a rational attitude seeking the harm of the object. And so that's how it's used of God. In a certain sense, we could use that in the same way of us. But as changeable creatures who do have emotions, our emotions are largely the effects of our thoughts upon our bodies. and includes things like shaking and adrenaline and all that kind of stuff. So the, the, the physical effects of our thoughts on our bodies to change that state, it impacts the mind. And so those feelings, um, those are the passions. God has no passions. And so when we use anger to speak of God, we're talking only about the rational, uh, the, the, the uh, mental element of it. And so it's used in that way. Thank you. Very good. Okay. Then let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the teaching of your word, that you would help us to carefully apply the sixth commandment, to think about how to speak to each other in such a way as to encourage peace, and encourage self-control, that you would help us to think about how to avoid fights and disputes uh, reaching uh, levels uh, that are destructive, and how to establish occasions for good works, that we would build around ourselves order and structure that is not tempting to do evil, but rather tempting to do what is good. And so we ask that you would help us to think those things through and to study carefully care for our bodies, uh, to be ready to defend, that you would help us to know how to speak in a useful way. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.